You are now listening to the May 12th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's program includes Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. And begin our program with Christianese 101. Hello everyone, this is Grace, and I am your host for this program, Christianese 101. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for the many words. This verse is from Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. When Jesus states, do not use meaningless repetition, do you know what he is speaking of? There is probably many of you that understand what he is saying. However, most people just assume the meaning of redundant or meaningless repetition in this setting. That is why today we will go over the meaning of redundant. To say that repetition and redundancy is the same thing is absolutely ludicrous. Repetition is generally used to clear up confusion or to leave a lasting word or phrase. On the other hand, redundant means something completely different. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it like this. Exceeding what is necessary or normal, superfluous. In other words, it means repetition to the point of annoyance. However, Jesus himself has had instances where he was very repetitive. Are you surprised to hear that? But, as you all probably already know, on the night Jesus was arrested, he prayed to God three whole times that this cup would be passed from him. Even the Apostle Paul implored the Lord three times in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, that the thorn in the flesh from Satan to torment Paul would be removed. However, the Bible does not say that Jesus and the Apostle Paul were redundant. Unfortunately, Bible scholars say that the Greek word for redundant used in Matthew chapter 6 verse 7 is only used once and is rather hard to find. That word is patologeo, and it means repeat the same things over and over and to use many idle words to babble or pray. In conclusion, Jesus is not condemning the act of repeating a prayer request and is instead telling us not to mumble meaningless words as filler in our prayers. The Greek people of the time believed that the many more they chanted, the more pleased their gods would be, and many people think that today as well. They think that the longer the prayer is, and the larger the vocabulary is, the more God will be pleased. This is the exact thing that Jesus is warning against. However, there is one last thing that you must remember. Immediately after, Jesus teaches his disciples the prayer that begins with, Our Father who art in heaven, the Lord's Prayer. Beware, however, because if you meaninglessly mumble this prayer during a service or when concluding your Bible study, this too can become a redundant and aimless chant. I hope to see you all next week. Goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. I hope you're having a good week, productive week, a week of of purity and holiness and sobriety. And if you didn't have a good week, Uh, Let me encourage you to stay engaged with godly friends. Why? Because when we have a bad week, we want to be alone and we don't want anybody around. And when we're alone and isolated, we end up doing some pretty stupid things, don't we? And we withdraw from the very people that we love. In fact, that's what we're discussing today on the podcast. It's called relational withdrawal. 
Over the past several days, we've learned what happens when I choose to act out by looking at pornography. But what happens now? What happens after we've looked at pornography or, or, or engaged in some type of other sexual sin? Well, usually we feel pretty guilty, right? If we don't, that's a problem. Um, but we don't, we feel guilty. We don't want to be around people. Uh, people make us grumpy. And have you ever wondered why you feel this way after acting out? It's not just you. This is a very real issue that we all experience when we choose to engage in sexual sin. These podcasts are from a larger lesson series called The Sex Spiral. Now, The Sex Spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are inside this habit, inside this bondage or addiction to pornography. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, how your internal thoughts about yourself now have external consequences. Number two, why? Why when I act out in sin, why do I choose to withdraw from other people? And number three, how pornography eventually becomes the only friend that you have. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is Withdrawing from Others. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Father, I pray that we are men who will remain steadfast. Thank you for your testing. Thank you for your trials that you would give us the opportunity to glorify and honor you through, uh, through these hardships, whether it's a temptation or a test through with sexual purity, whether it's a test via finances or children or career or our wives or, or other relationships, Lord. When we stand the test that we will actually receive the crown, the crown of life, which you've promised to those who love you. Lord, we do love you. And I pray, Lord God, that we honor you tonight with our teaching and with our words and with our, our confessions and our small group discussions. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if you want to flip to the first page in your binder to the, the actual spiral itself, we'll take a look at the, the 12 triggers and we'll just review real quick. All right, so trigger number one, the awareness. That's where we are aware of what's going on. And our first uh, awareness trigger is that we actually know what's going on around us so that we should call, we should flee, we should pray. If we don't do that, then we're going to move into trigger number two, which is our unhealthy self-thoughts or our shame. That's the tape that plays in our head over and over and over again. It's this idea of not that I am, not that I've done a bad thing, but that I literally am bad. If I don't confess, if I don't flee, if I don't pray at that point, then I'm going to move into the temptation, which is the actual desire this is where I really want to do whatever it is that's placed in front of me. 
I may or may not go into a, a moment of resistance at that point. Remember, resistance only intensifies the pleasure, especially extended resistance. Trigger number five is rationalization. I'm going to talk myself into committing the sin. I'm going to make it sound better than what it really is. I'm going to move into a place of hiding at that point for the sole purpose of committing the sin. I'm going to act out in sin. And then trigger number eight tonight is isolation or uh, relational withdrawal. So trigger number eight, relational withdrawal or isolation, this is the immediate effect of sin. So acting out in sin, it convinces me of something. And it convinces me that I don't like me. Not only do I not like me, I don't like you either, right? I don't like anybody. So I'm going to go into a place of relational withdrawal. I'm going to isolate myself from everyone. And relational withdrawal is the beginning of the outward effects of my shame on other people. It's this, um, well, it's key point number one. It's your internal thoughts about yourself now have external consequences. Key point number one, your internal thoughts about yourself, which is trigger number two, now have external consequences. So shame is, shame says that I'm going to believe that I am my behavior, that I truly am powerless over my sin. Shame is this painful emotion and feeling because I've done something dishonorable, right? I'm not supposed to be doing what I'm doing. Or something dishonorable has been done to me. It's a disgrace, not only what I've done, but ultimately who I am as a person. So shame is not that I've done something stupid, but that I am stupid. See the difference? It's not that I've made a mistake, it's that I am a mistake. That's what shame says. Key point number two, because I've acted out in sin, shame now demands more isolation. Key point number two, because I've acted out in sin, shame now demands more isolation. So my feelings and my attitudes, I'm going to move away from family and friends. Shame makes me move away from the very people who love and care for me the most. So for example, while I'm at work or while you're at work, you're maybe distracted, you're unproductive. And because you're distracted and unproductive, you're becoming more and more irritable. I remember that. Man, I remember that. I just wanted people to leave me alone. And the more they would ask me, hey, you don't seem like yourself. It just made me want to rip their face off, right? That's this idea of relational withdrawal. Because they're, they're trying to help you, but they're actually, from my perspective was, quit prying into my life, man. Just leave me alone. But he's trying to help me, but I wouldn't let him there. Once again, I'm, I'm doing the Heisman, right? I'm pushing this guy away, and the only way that to let him in is the only way that can help me. But I'm going to keep everybody at an arm's, arm's length distance. But what if you don't have any friends? You got family and your friends, but what if you don't have any family and friends asking you prying questions? Well, key point number three says, if you don't have any friends, then your sin has become your friend. 
if you don't have any friends, your sin has become your friend, or, or your pornography has become your friend, or the massage parlor, or the strip club has become your friend. Because we have to remember that we spend time with the things, or with the people and the things that we love. We spend time there. So key point number four is that true repentance can always be determined by my willingness to face those affected by my sin. Key point number four, true repentance can always be determined by my willingness to face those affected by my sin. This is huge. This key point right here, it just says so much about my my own willingness, my own obedience, my own loving obedience. It's not like when we think obedience or obey, it's like my immediate thought is, oh, I've got to stubbornly obey. I don't want to do this. I have to do it, right? If I'm in the military, I've got, oh, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to salute and do it. It's one of those things to where it's, this is the recollection that God saved me And I'm so grateful that I'm willing to do anything he's asked me to do, even if it hurts, right? That's what repentance looks like. It's like, I'm going to do anything it takes to make this right. Anything it takes. I had something happen to me (laughs) this past week. You know, when people say you got run over by a bus, I didn't see this conversation coming to save my life. I had a conversation with a guy I don't know him that well. I've kind of running, running to him over the past six or seven years. And he just lays into me over the situation that is so overblown. It's just, and I'm going, how, I'm thinking, okay, don't overreact. Because right now I want to, I, I do, I want to put my hands around your throat and pray for you as I'm squeezing. Right? So I'm telling the story to Amy, and I'm like, well, I've got to make this right. I don't want to, uh, I've got to make this right. But I don't want to call him. But I don't want to, but I have to, right? It's my willingness to make it right, to clear up the confusion and the fog, even though this, this guy bugs the crap out of me. But I still, it's a lovingly obedience type thing. It's just doing the things that you don't want to do. But at the same time, the more you do them, the the more loving your obedience becomes. It's not a, a willful disobedience type thing. Have you experienced this desire to be obedient to the Lord in your walk towards purity? This walk towards healthy sexuality? If you're married, do you have a a desire to make your spouse happy and and want to make his or her life easier? If you have children, do you have a desire to teach them things so that they grow up wise and strong, so that they don't make the same mistakes that you've made? I think it's a similar experience to desire holiness and, and purity in our lives. This obedience that we're talking about It comes from a love for Jesus Christ that's not out of obligation. 
This is about a relationship. My wife, Amy, will ask me to do something, usually, you know, something very minor to help clean the house and and I'll begin to do it and, and I'll try to keep the grumbling to myself, you know, because I'm a, a slob and a pig and unbelievably selfish. And she'll say, hey, are you doing that with joy in your heart? Well, cleaning the house, that doesn't really bring joy to my heart, but seeing the joy on Amy's face when we're done. Now that, that's why I choose to help because I love her and I want to make life easier for her as she does me. So this desire to be obedient, it's an amazing journey. And through the stages of recovery, I've noticed that I just, you know, I just don't want to embarrass my Lord. I don't want to embarrass my Savior, Jesus Christ, anymore. Man, I'm, I'm so done with that. In fact, one of my prayers is, Lord, please strike me dead if I'm ever getting ready to do something that will embarrass you. I mean it, man. I'm, I'm tired of embarrassing him and shaming his name and, and making him look bad with my own stupid, sinful behavior. How about you? Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Are you tired of having the same conversation with your spouse over and over and over again about pornography, getting caught yet again and again and nothing ever changing? Are you tired of being embarrassed yourself because of all of this? One way to stop the embarrassment is to have an offensive plan. And that plan starts with protecting yourself from yourself. It's installing Covenant Eyes accountability and filtering software on all your devices. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. If you're in Phoenix, you're invited to my weekly community group. I would love to meet you face to face. It's for men and women, husbands and wives, together, separated, single, divorced. Hey, 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 everybody is welcome. You're invited to listen to God with us. When's the last time that you spent 20 minutes just listening to God? It's fascinating. It's, it's awesome. And I want to invite you. We uh, meet at Northern Hills Community Church Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. We're in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. You can email me your questions at DustinDanielsRadio.com. I would love to respond to those. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. Power that's in the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Praying and Working for Justice and Racialization. Based on Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Well, if you have the word of this God, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me in the Bible to Amos chapter 5. We are starting this year with 40 days of concentrated prayer, and as I've prayed about where to go in the Word during these days, I believe God has led us to two different sensitive topics that we need to address as the church in our culture with God's Word. 
So we know that this weekend we celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday, January 15th, 1929. And the next weekend, many of you know that churches traditionally celebrate sanctity of life. So as we pray together during these 40 days, it seems most appropriate for us to pray for God's justice and mercy in a culture that is marked by both racialization and abortion. Now there are obvious challenges that come with both of these topics. They are politically charged. They evoke a range of thoughts, emotions, opinions. There's a reason why pastors are hesitant to preach on these topics because of the variety of responses they inevitably elicit. I just want to be clear this week and next that my goal as pastor is not to promote my or anyone else's opinion or political position. You don't want to hear from me. We want to hear from God. We would indeed be united together around the Bible, just as the name of our church says. So my hope today and then next Sunday is to help us see how the Bible addresses these issues in our culture. And as we dive into them, I'd like to ask for just an extra measure of grace from you. So I know that amidst any word I say can go in 12,000 different directions. On this topic today, I feel like there are landmines everywhere. There's the opportunity to offend white people, black people, people of a variety of ethnicities. Some people are already offended that I'm even differentiating between different colors of people, like I've already offended you. So then on top of all that, our sensitivity obviously heightened after news the last couple of days here in Washington. When I was preparing the sermon, I sent a draft to different pastors and members in our church and outside our church just to get counsel feedback. And I received so much helpful feedback. The only problem was much of it was contradictory. Yeah, leave this, take this out. Others saying, no, leave that, take this out. It's like, ah, so I'm just asking for grace. I know that it's really easy. I know it's easy for my words to be taken out of context, particularly since we're going to go a bit longer than usual in the word today. And so I know it's possible for you to tune out at one point and back in a few minutes later. But if you miss what's in the middle, you might misunderstand the whole point. So, and I want to ask for grace because if there's one conclusion I've come to on this topic, it's that I have so much to learn process of preparing this sermon. God has opened my eyes to blind spots in my life and my leadership or lack thereof in the church on this issue. I'll share next week about how for years I viewed abortion as a political issue and I didn't speak about it in the church, which was wrong. Abortion is a biblical issue and so is racism and racialization. And this week, just to be honest, I've been brought to tears because God has opened my eyes to sinfulness I hadn't seen in myself. Things I'll say today that I might have been offended by before, yet now I'm wondering why in the world I haven't seen and said these things. So all this to say, I don't presume to come to this topic with everything figured out. I have so much to learn, and I want to learn from God's word together in the context of this church. So I'm just asking for extra grace from God and from you today. In fact, let me pray toward that end for, for me and for us. Uh, let's pray. Oh God, we need you. We need to hear from you in our world right now. We, as your people in a sinful world, we have blind spots that we can't 
see on our own. We need your word and your spirit to help us see. I think about my Bible reading yesterday, Lord Matthew 13, where you described a people whose hearts were hard and they couldn't see. God, I pray for soft hearts in this room and at other campuses. I pray for my own heart, for hearts across. You would help us to hear your word and see our world as you see it. You alone are wise on this issue. We are not. For any of us who think we have this issue figured out, we pray that you would strike down our pride today because we don't have it figured out. None of us does, but you do. So we need to hear from you and we want to act, God, I pray that this would not just be a sermon, that you would use us, you would use this church to show your justice in the world around us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. This is the word of God. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Verse 24 was a passage Martin Luther King quoted repeatedly in the civil rights movement. And the meaning of it, it's clear. It doesn't really require much explanation. The people of Israel were worshiping God. All three of their primary worship offerings are mentioned here, the burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering. They were worshiping with loud songs and music. But God says, listen to the language. He says, I hate your offerings. I despise them. I take no delight in them. I will not accept them or look upon them. Take them away from me. I will not listen to your songs. Why was that the case? Why was God rejecting their worship? And the answer in verse 24 is clear. Because they were not working for justice and righteousness around them. God's people were quick to bring their offerings, raise their hands, sing their songs and worship to God above them. Yet they were content to ignore injustice around them. And God says, I hate it. I don't even want to hear it. So if you're taking notes, here's the one truth that Amos 5, 21 through 24 makes clear. If we are going to truly worship God above us, then we must sacrificially work for justice around us. If we are going to truly worship God above us, then we must work sacrificially for justice around us. One commentator said justice here would mean fairness for the less fortunate, dignity and compassion for the needy. Righteousness would include attributes of mercy and generosity and honest dealings that imitate the character of God. And the picture's clear. Israel's rejection of justice in the social order led to God's rejection of their songs. God is not honored by mouths and hands that are quick to rise in worship when those same mouths and hands are slow to speak and work against injustice. He hates worship like that. So we have to ask the question, as a worshiping community, as the church, as a people who gather together every week to sing our songs, give our offerings 
to God, just like we've done today. Have we been or are we now slow to speak and work against racial injustice? And I believe the answer to that question is yes. Now, I'm going to make a general statement here, which I know is dangerous because 12,000 different lives with 12,000 different experiences, but on a whole, churches in America, instead of bridging the racial divide in our country, have historically widened and are currently widening the racial divide in our country. Churches in America, instead of bridging the racial divide in our country, have historically widened and are currently widening the racial divide in our country. Now, I know that's a bold statement, but I want to show you in the next few minutes, this is not a matter of opinion. This is fact. At the same time, I want to show you that that fact does not have to continue. I want to show you in the next few minutes that this can change, that the church can be a powerful, I would unequivocally say, the most powerful impetus for justice in our culture on the issue of race. If we will humble ourselves before God and one another and pray and work together for justice as the people of God in a way that pleases God. So if you're taking notes, I want to offer six exhortations to us as the church that I believe we need to hear. If we're going to truly worship God, Amos 5, in the time and place in which God has put us. So number one, pastorally, I want to exhort us to look at the reality of racialization. Open our eyes. Look at the reality of racialization. Now, for some, that might be a strange term. You might be wondering, don't you mean racism? Are you dodging that term? Just call it what it is. And here's why I'm not using that term. I'm not trying to dodge it. The problem is a lot of people, including a lot of white people, when we hear the word racist, we think of the extreme a white supremacist marching in Charlottesville or a Klan member marching on the streets of Alabama in 1960. And we think, I'm not a white supremacist, so I'm not a racist. In fact, many white people think that very few people are racist. We can even start to believe that racism is not much of a problem today. It's just the extremes. Individually, we don't think we have any prejudice against someone because of their ethnicity. We think, even say, that we're colorblind, that it doesn't matter to us if someone is black or white. When the reality is, it does matter in our culture today whether someone is black or white. Let me pause, offer a couple caveats here. So one, we're thinking right now specifically about the historic and current white-black divide in the United States. So I know that in this church we have 106 different nations, different ethnicities who face hundreds of challenges, unique to them in American culture. And I in no way as a church want us to ignore those challenges. So on Martin Luther King weekend, we're specifically thinking about the challenges of the white-black divide in our culture, knowing some of those challenges overlap with all sorts of ethnicities. The other caveat deals with the terms race and ethnicity. So I would prefer to talk only in terms of ethnicity, not race, based upon the Bible. When you look at the Bible, from the beginning, there's only one race of people. If you ask the question, what race were Adam and Eve, what's the answer going to be? The human race, right? Now at that point, we might wonder, well, what color was their skin? As if that mattered at all. It doesn't matter. Which is why the Bible doesn't tell us what color their skin was. Now in most picture Bibles in the West, we painted a portrait of a white Adam and Eve, but we have no basis for that assumption. For all we know, they could have been any color or different colors. If anything, genetics points to the greater probability they had darker skin, which is the dominant gene in skin color. The point is, God's word never 
equates membership in the human race with skin tone. Whatever color Adam and Eve and their children were, they contained in them a DNA designed by God that would eventually develop into a multicolored family across a multicultural world. And in this way, God's word teaches us that regardless of the color of our skin, we all have the same roots. We're all part of the same race, which is why I don't like using the term race because it actually undercuts our unity before God. Any sense of racial hierarchy or inequality, including that which has marked our country's history based on skin color, any concept of racism goes directly against God's design and it's sinful to the core. And regardless of what's been said or not said this week, we know the Bible beckons all of us to speak with crystal clear clarity on the equality and dignity of all people from any country. So this is why I'd rather use the term ethnicity because the Bible uses that term in good ways. But in this sinful world, we differentiate unbiblically according to race, specifically skin color. So for now, I want to encourage us to look at, see the reality of racialization. So I'm using that term to refer to a society in which race, and specifically black or white skin color, profoundly affects people's economic, political, and social experiences. A society in which race is significant enough to be regularly acknowledged and mentioned just on a simple, practical level. Why is it that I would say that Arthur Price is an African-American pastor in Birmingham rather than just saying he's a pastor in Birmingham? I never talk about John MacArthur as a Caucasian-American pastor. He's just a pastor. So we're not talking about blunt prejudice here. That's why I'm not using the term racism because we look back in American history and some, maybe many people, might wonder, aren't we past this? And yes, slavery was wrong, but slavery is gone. It has been for decades. But the reality is we could have said that in 1955. But we all know that racism was still alive and well, right? Likewise, we could say today, okay, but everybody uses the same water fountains now. We can all sit on the same bus wherever we want, which is true, and we need to pause and praise God that those things have changed. And praise God for people in this church right now, black, white, and otherwise, who have worked in different ways to change these realities in our country over the last 50 years. Praise God, those are not realities anymore. But just because those realities are no longer true doesn't mean racialization is gone. So let me paint a picture of our country with an admittedly broad stroke. I'm not talking about any specific city or community like D.C. or anyone you may live in. But the reality is, the facts are, black Americans are much more likely to be unemployed than white Americans. The current ratio of two unemployed black people for every one unemployed white person has held pretty much constant since 1950. When you measure household wealth, on average, the median net worth of black people is 8% that of white people, 8%. Once you take out any equity accrued in a home or vehicle, the median net financial assets of black people are 0% those of white people. African-American babies die at a rate over twice the frequency of white babies. African-American mothers are four times more likely to die in childbirth than white American mothers. Young African-American males are six times more likely to be murdered than are young white American males. We've all heard the black-white disparities in the criminal justice system that have been highlighted over recent years. You put it all together, you look at every study there is, and you will see that white Americans are far more likely than black Americans to get a quality education, to have a high-paying job, and to live in a more affluent neighborhood with less crime. Now, 
Obviously, I need to stop here and make two key caveats. One, I mentioned this is a broad stroke. The last thing I am trying to do is equate black with poor or uneducated. I trust we all know that is not the case. One of my concerns with even talking about this disparity is that it might create some artificial sense of pity for African Americans that actually contributes more to racialization. My point in mentioning this is just to make clear that race, specifically white or black skin color, affects one's life in our country. And the other caveat is, I'm not even saying why that disparity exists. We have all kinds of ideas about why it exists. We'll get to that in a minute. For now, I'm just pointing out a disparity exists. We can't deny this. Like, these are not opinions. They are facts. It matters in our country whether or not someone is white or black. Which is why I think we try to convince ourselves it doesn't matter. We think to ourselves, I don't hold prejudice toward black or white people, so racism is not my problem. But this is where we need to see that racialization is our problem. It's all of our problem, and we suddenly, almost unknowingly, contribute to it. I was thinking about it this week. I haven't thought about this in decades. It mattered when a family with black skin moved into my neighborhood. We might like to think we're past this today, but residential segregation studies continually show, now again, this is on a national scale, so this may not be true for your neighborhood, but residential segregation studies continually show that the degree of residential segregation between black people and non-black people is far greater now than between any other two racial groups in the United States. And it's not just in the South. In fact, the farther you get outside the South, the greater percentage you have of African Americans in an area, the greater the level of segregation. That leads to one more facet of racialization we need to realize before we move on, and this is massive. I believe we in the church want racialization to change. In our hearts as followers of Christ, we want to see an end to racial division and disparity. But despite the best intentions of our hearts, reality is the church today is one of the most segregated institutions in our culture. Over 95% of white Americans attend predominantly white churches. Over 90% of African Americans attend predominantly black churches. And we know that didn't happen just accidentally or overnight. It's been the case ever since slavery and the discrimination white churches showed toward black Christians even after the Civil War. Ever since then, so get this, ever since then, churches in our culture not bridged the racial divide in our country, Churches are right now, every single week, reinforcing that divide. Could it be that as much as we'd like to think that church is a force for countering racialization, right now we are actually a force for continuing it? And in this way, I just wonder if instead of looking out there for all the reasons behind racialization in our society, we actually need to pause and at least start by looking in here. Brothers and sisters, we need to look at the reality of racialization. We cannot turn a blind eye to this reality in the culture around us or in the church among us with that clear white-black divide that leads to all sorts of inequality in our country. It is not right, and we will not be found to be worshiping God if we are ignoring injustice or, much worse, increasing it. Second exhortation. I want to be clear. I don't presume there are easy answers here. I've just been praying, God, how does your word beckon us to act 
And so I just want to bring God's word to bear on what God's calling us to do. So second, exhortation. Look at the reality of racialization. Then second, live in true multi-ethnic community. So biblically here, think Ephesians chapter 2. In the first century, there was a massive cultural divide between Jews and Gentiles. You didn't eat with each other, associate with each other. You called each other dogs. You had different traditions, different customs, different lifestyles. But what happened? Jews started following Jesus, and so did Gentiles, which was a problem for many Jews. You read the book of Acts, and it was a controversy when Gentiles wanted to be baptized, and Gentiles wanted to be part of the church. It was scandalous when they started eating at the same tables and worshiping in the same rooms. Paul writes Ephesians in part to say, this is right. You are one now. You are no longer divided. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, for Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He says the same thing, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That verse is not denying ethnic or gender distinctions. It's saying that over and above those real distinctions, together we are one in Christ. The gospel of Jesus has unique power to bring different people together. And it makes sense, right? Ultimately, division among people over race or anything else goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when man and woman sinned against God, separating themselves not only from God, but from each other. And ever since that day, it is sin that has stood at the root of all racial pride and prejudice. But when Jesus went to the cross, he conquered sin. And he made the way for people to be forgiven and free from it, restored to God, and in the process, reconciled to one another. That's why followers of Christ, regardless of skin color, have one father as one family in one household with no dividing wall of hostility based upon ethnic diversity. Jesus makes that possible. Outside that church on a good Friday, Martin Luther King participated in a peaceful march. He was arrested, put in jail, where he faced harsh conditions and solitary confinement. So there I stood 50 years later, invited by the pastor of that church to preach in front of a room full of black and white Christians. And I was keenly reminded on that Good Friday that the cross is what makes that kind of community possible. The cross makes true multi-ethnic community possible. So I want to exhort us to pursue that kind of community. Just like Jews and Gentiles in the first century could have chosen to say, to live and eat and worship separate from one another, we could do that. But I want to exhort us not to do that. By God's grace, this church is an anomaly. Having 106 different nations represented here, I praise God for the grace he's given in an increasingly multi-ethnic staff. Specifically, half of our campus pastors are African-American. For the number of churches we're partnering with and are planting, pastored by African-Americans. And I just want to exhort us, may this only be the tip of the iceberg, the beginning of ever-increasing true multi-ethnic community. Not just sitting to next to one another in a worship service, but sharing life together. I listened to those sermons Mike preached when he mentioned how the most segregated place in America may not be the church, but the dinner table. May that not be true in any one of our lives. So I can't stress how critical this is because most Christian solutions, or at least many white Christian solutions to racism or racialization stop right here. Basically with the exhortation to get to know somebody of another race or ethnicity, as if that alone will solve the problem of racialization. But we have to realize that the problem of racialization is far deeper than individual relationships. 
So this is where I would offer this third exhortation. In the context of true multi-ethnic community, listen to specifically from others who don't look like you and who may not think like you. Think James chapter one, right before James addresses prejudice and favoritism and partiality in the church, he writes, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James 1.19. That is a good word for all of us when it comes to racialization. Because this issue is so emotionally charged, it's tense, we're so prone to think differently about it, and we really need to listen to and learn from one another. So as I was preparing for this week, I came across research on people's opinions of why there is such inequality when it comes to race in our country. And so this is where I want to use the screen up here. So basically, different options as contributing factors to racialization. So basically, they pointed out the disparities that we've talked about between white and black people when it comes to jobs, income, housing. And then they asked, so why do these disparities exist? And basically, respondents could answer along this spectrum. So one on the left side of the screen here, they could say that disparities were due primarily to a lack of individual responsibility, basically a lack of personal motivation among individual people to work hard and climb out of poverty. Second, they could say disparities are due primarily to unequal education, lack of access to quality education. Three, so on the right side of the screen here, they could say that racialization was due primarily to unjust systems and discrimination in society. So the, the researchers questioned white people and black people, and then they asked if they were professing Christians, and here's what they found. So more White non-Christians were prone to answer that racial inequality is due to individual factors, some lack of education, less unjust systems, and structural discrimination. On the other hand, more black non-Christians were prone to answer that racial inequality is due to unjust discriminating structures and systems, including education. So on the right side of the scale here. So that's where white and black non-Christians were. Here's what's so interesting though. Among professing Christians, here's what the researchers found. White professing Christians were even farther on the left side of the scale. They were even more prone to explain racial disparity due to a lack of individual responsibility and personal motivation to work to get out of poverty. And black professing Christians were even farther on the right side of the scale. They were more prone to explain racial inequality due to discrimination in American systems and structures. Now here's the point. I'm obviously not saying that all white people believe this and all black people believe that. I'm not even saying this is the perfect way to ask these questions. I didn't come up with the research. Here's what I took away from it though. What was so eye-opening for me when I saw this was to realize that basically the more Christian you are, so to speak, the more likely you are to be divided on the issue of racialization. So the idea that if everybody was just a Christian, we wouldn't have a racialization problem isn't true. The reality is our faith, which we want to bring us together across races, at this point is actually driving us further apart. So seeing this was so humbling and so helpful. Like I started thinking about the tension that exists, not just in the culture, but in the church in light of 
stories in Ferguson or Falcon Heights or Baltimore. And my aim is in no way to simplify this. In any way, I don't want to simplify it, but the reality is statistically, more white people are prone to immediately think on the left side of the screen here, and more black people are prone to think on the right side of the screen. This affects the way we think about politics, economics, social systems, and structures. We're oftentimes on different pages, and we know this, right? Like, really means we need to listen to and learn from one another. None of us can think about racialization in isolation. We need to be in true multi-ethnic community where we're sitting around the table sharing life with brothers and sisters who think differently from us. And when we're at that table, we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. As followers of Christ, like we know, the Bible speaks to both sides of this the screen, right? Without question, the Bible speaks to individual responsibility. We are responsible before God and one another for our actions. Romans 2, 6 through 10. We're responsible for working hard. Colossians 3, 23. At the same time, the same Bible requires us to work hard for justice. Micah 6, 8. To correct oppression. Isaiah 1, 17. To defend the rights of those in need. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. And we will miss it, church, if we're not willing to sit at the same table with people who are different from us with our Bibles open, listening to and learning from one another. That's the point. Let's listen to and learn from each other. And as we do, so fourth exhortation, let's love and lay aside our preferences for one another. Let's love one another. Think John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Just think about two individuals, each side here. So imagine a white follower of Christ on the left and a black follower of Christ on the right. They think about racialization in totally different terms, and it affects so much of how they view the world, economically, socially, politically, opposite ends of the spectrum. But now, picture those same two people in the same church, listening to each other, learning from each other, and loving one another in authentic Christian community. That makes no sense to the world. That is what we want to be as a church. The kind of church that causes people to ask, how are those two together? doesn't make any sense. What's the reason? We want to be a group of people from different economic positions, political persuasions, who, if we were to get into some political discussions, we'd be on opposite sides of the spectrum. But when we gather together as the church and all through the week, we're sitting right next to each other with our Bibles open because this is what Word of God unites us. The Word made flesh, Jesus, unites us. Because here's the reality. Our politics don't, but our King does. Which means we must lay aside our preferences for one another. Which, all right, so think about that, preferences. So there's not just historical reasons, there's also contemporary reasons why churches split over racial ethnic lines. Part of it is because we like being around people who are like us, who sing songs that we like, do things the way we like to do them. This has been the name of the game in church growth for decades now. The way to draw a crowd in a church is just to appeal to people's preferences to the point where proponents of church growth have actually advocated what they call the homogeneous unit principle, which basically states that a church can grow the fastest if it only has one cultural group. The thing is, if you want to reach as many people as possible and people like being around those who are most like them, then focus on trying to reach one type of person in one church and another type of person in another church. So the way to grow the church is to appeal to people's individual preferences. Time to go into this one biblically today, but suffice to say, it's not in the Bible. 
Like you never see, Paul say to Jewish people, you guys just stick together. We can grow our church, your church a lot faster if you keep the Gentiles out. You Gentiles start your own churches. That's the best way to go. No, they're working hard to come together. They're sacrificing personal preferences because the church is not about their preferences. It's about the display of Christ's supremacy and his glory shines most clearly when different groups of people come together and he's the only explanation for why they're together. That's what we want to be. But, but that's not easy. I would say it's particularly hard for minority brothers and sisters. So it's interesting, I'm guessing, or I guess not surprising, there's growing research that shows how most multi-ethnic churches in our country are still dominated by white cultural norms. Music style, authors, others referenced by the pastor, so on. So even in a multi-ethnic church, there can still be a sense of disparity which leads to more sacrifice on the part of non-ethnicities who have set aside all sorts of preferences, musical, preaching style, or otherwise. I think about members of our staff from different ethnicities. I think about Mike and Eric, African-American campus pastors, who have honestly shared with me how they frequently wrestle with investing their leadership here instead of in the church communities that raise them. There are members, pastors of this church who have made many sacrifices to be here because they're committed to multi-ethnic community. So I just want to say from my position, but I actually read this week how studies have shown that white church leaders are less likely to speak and act prophetically on race issues because white church leaders have more to lose when they do. Basically, if you want to draw a crowd in general, you stay away from racial issues. If you want to draw a white crowd, definitely stay away from saying white people are part of the problem on racial issues. Because the reality is, people mainly want to be comforted when they come to church. Like as people, we're just naturally drawn to that which bring the most, brings the most benefit with the least cost. People will choose the church of comfort most every time, which is why we've designed so much of church culture the way we have. It's why we're so prone not to talk about issues that are uncomfortable to us. And I just want to say, I don't think the Bible gives us that option. Amos 5 doesn't give us that option. We cannot truly worship God while we stay silent on injustice in all kinds of areas. And I know as a white pastor, I have blind spots. I am part of the problem. And I need friends and fellow pastors around me from different ethnicities who help me see those blind spots. And I'm committed to listening and learning and loving and laying aside whatever contemporary church growth methodology says is the best way to grow the church, i.e. ignore the issues. I want to do the exact opposite. I want us to hear God's word clearly on the issues. And we can trust God with the growth of his church. We can trust him. Love, lay aside preference. I need to move on. Two final exhortations. One Five, we're going to worship God truly. Then leverage your influence for justice in the present. Leverage your influence for justice in the present. This is the exhortation just flowing from verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What a great picture. The language here is like gushing with torrents of water that overflow and never run dry. This is what pleases God. When justice isn't trickling from God's people, but tumbling through dry valleys of injustice all around them. So my encouragement is, exhortation is for us, each of us, to look at our lives, to look at our families, your job, your position, the opportunities you and I have, the resources you and I possess, to look at all this and say, how can I leverage 
my influence for justice around me. The true test for us as a church is not how much applause there might be during a sermon like this, but how we live. And for me and other pastors and elders, how we lead this church to leverage our influence for justice. I trust we know, again, speaking broadly here, every era of American racism, white churches have been found complacent. And I would include many of the pastors and theologians I frequently quote, actively commended, promoted, and defended slavery. And slavery is a stain upon that era of church history. Some might say a scar that's still healing and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. I have heard so many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. For justice in the present. Then, final exhortation, Let's long for the day when justice will be perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, there's coming a day when Amos chapter 5, verse 24, will be a reality. Revelation 22 gives us a picture of heaven with this description. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, the ethnic group, all the ethnicities of the world. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever with him. Martin Luther King had a dream of states sweltering with the heat of injustice and oppression, transformed into oases of justice and freedom. He had a dream of a day when rough places would be made plain, crooked places would be made straight, racism would be forever gone, and freedom would forever ring. And I think it's clear from all we've seen today that there is still work to do in Washington, in our country, and all over the world for that matter. There is coming a day Mark it down when every nation, every tribe, every tongue in the human race, every color of person who's trusted in Christ will gather around his throne, forgiven of all our sin and free to worship him in a place of perfect justice and pure righteousness. So let's live for that day. Let's pray and work for that day. Let's long for that day when the glory of God will be finally and fully revealed in the unity of his church.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.